And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Now, anyone who listens to this show, or frankly, any of the shows that I do, you'll probably pick up that I love animals. And not only regular run-of-the-mill animals, your pets, your wildlife, your zoo animals, but also your weird animals. The, The strange animals you've never heard of or that can do amazing things, or in some cases, can do very similar things to us humans. That is where today's guest comes in. I'm talking with Dr. Danny Rabiati, who wrote a series of books with her co-author, Nick Caruso. Now, she's a zoologist at the Institute of Zoology in the UK, and she's written some some pretty fun books that really kind of, they they appeal to, not only they appeal to the 12-year-old and all of us, but they appeal to that general curiosity we all have. And the first book kind of encapsulates it all. It is called, Does It Fart?, and of course, we all have that question on our mind when we look at any animal. Does it fart? Is it farting currently? And has it just farted when we smell something pretty awful? Her second book, True or Poo. And the third book, the one that just came out last year, Believe It or Snot. And this kind of looks into all of the mucusy, slimy kinds of animals. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm really excited about this. The 12-year-old inside of me is very excited about this. So let's jump right in with Dr. Danny Rabiati. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, your main area of expertise on the, uh, let's say, legitimate side of your science business is studying climate change and its impact on wild African dogs? Um, Yeah, so um, my study species is African wild dogs. Um, They're also known as painted wolves, African hunting dogs. They have a lot of names. (laughs) So the scientific name for them is Lycaon pictus, mm-hmm. um, which which kind of literally translates to painted wolf. Um, and yeah, I look at how temperature impacts them um, and how climate change will impact them into the future um, using a load of data from from our study site, our ZSL study site, among others. Now, I looked up some of the stuff that you've done and some of your specialties. Let me see. This I don't know if this is not this is not a comprehensive list, but you've, you've, you're modeling behavioral and population shifts resulting from increasing temperatures, uh, echinastic species distribution models, climate change impacts on the African mammal conservation. But you're also looking at poop, poop smelly cousin the fart, and slimes. Uh, how did you? How do you kind of separate legitimate science? Uh, you, you've kind of made for your, a name for yourself as kind of the scatological scientist. Uh, how do you kind of separate those two? Yeah, I mean, I get this question a lot. I remember when we did back when we did the first book, "Does It Fart," and um, the head of my department at the time came up to me and she was like, "Danny, you know, do you really want to be known for fart?" I mean, that should have been met with a resounding yes. But 
the amount of people that I reach through that side of things is much bigger than I ever reach through my scientific papers. Sure. I'm not going to have like tens and thousands of people reading my scientific papers. Although I would encourage people to, uh, my, you know, a few of them are open access. So I think they're interesting. You might have tens of people. Yeah, I know. Exactly. If you're lucky, hundreds, maybe a few thousand. But yeah, so I think it just kind of works both ways. People don't necessarily want to read the kind of content that we put in the scientific paper a lot of it is quite technical uh relies quite a lot on kind of statistics and maths um so it's not this it's not really the same thing and i think it all feeds into each other like the books helped me to communicate my science and my science helped me to research and write the books. So that's how I kind of meld those two. No, but now, honestly, like why, why even do the other science, you know, the, I mean, I assume you probably have a passion for conservation, but like, why not just to, I, I mean, look, I, I, I work in entertainment. I know that what it's like to embrace those types of things. I mean, why not just become the fart scientist or the scat scientist and just put out books like that and make a you know million dollars becoming like the, the cool scientist who does that. I mean, there's lots of people out there who do similar things and it doesn't necessarily delegitimize you, you know? I think probably if I'd made a million dollars, I might have switched completely. Um, but I think it's just a case of um, I really enjoy doing both things. And although I've really enjoyed writing about farts mm, and writing about poo and writing a stats not and I really enjoy doing the work related to that it's quite hard especially in this day and age for authors to earn a lot of money off their books mm -hmm. so I think it's really tricky a lot of people said are you going to go like full-time into science communication now but it's it's a tough market out there <laughs> no that's very true uh, now how did this particular book series and you know we're talking about does it fart? True or poo? And does believe it or snot? And I imagine you know I, I don't want to give away any any spoilers here, but I imagine your toilet trilogy is probably either going to to finish that up. You're going to have should it shart or perhaps it pees. I imagine to, to kind of put a button on that. But how did this whole thing kind of come about? This whole book series. So um, I think back in must have been 2016. I want to say in in the January of that year, mm -hmm. I was on holiday with my family, and my brother said to me, "Oh, look, Danny, like, do snakes fart?" And I was mm -hmm. like, That's a "Good question. Oh, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. I'm not a snake expert." Um, but I was quite active on Twitter. A lot of scientists use Twitter to talk to people about their work and also to talk to each other about their work. So, um, mm. I I did know someone who was a snake expert through Twitter. So so I pinged him a, a tweet. I was like. David do snakes fart and he was very unimpressed by this question but he did answer it uh, and he was like sigh yes and other people saw this interaction and were like oh this is hilarious and um, that's where Nick my co-author came in we didn't really super know each other well at the time yeah he suggested that we create a hashtag does it fart and we all share our study animals and whether they farted or not um, and, and being a scientist, obviously, I was like, well, we've got to turn this into a spreadsheet because then mm -hmm. when people ask, does it fart? Because as zoologists, kids love these kind of questions. They ask us it all the time. Mm -hmm. So we thought the spreadsheet would be super handy for other zoologists if they get <laughs> right, asked any of these yeah. questions, they can refer to it, right? right. So, so that was kind of that. We thought that was just like a bit of a joke slash potentially useful resource mm -hmm. that we've created. Now, now, now hold on. I want to pause you there. Two questions come up. Number one, uh, 
I don't want to. I don't want to kill comedy. I, I try not to do that. But if I understand farting correctly, basically any animal with an, an intestinal tract that has microbes in it is probably farting, right? Yeah, I mean it does depend on the physiology of the animal. We've got, we found a couple of animals that did have both of those, but didn't really fart. Oh, that, so, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So. It did go a bit beyond that, but yeah, like quite a lot of animals that don't fart essentially don't fart because they don't even really have a digestive system. So <laughs> right. it's quite difficult. Or don't have a butt, you know, like right. to watch you. Right, a um, place to expel it. Now, And also, from what I understand, this database, this is the largest crowdsourced database on animal farts in a human existence, Correct. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and and that's that's kind of what happened with that was that a few journalists um, that had followed this on Twitter then wrote stories about it, like scientists are crowdsourcing a database of animal farts, so they were really excited about it. There was we were kind of in the Washington Post, on Gizmodo, a bunch of other um, websites, and yeah, that was in in the midst of all that. I ended up on Canadian TV. They projected me in front of the Houses of Parliament oh, wow. to talk about animal parts, which was hilarious. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so that was when our publishers wrote to us and were like, "Do you want to? Do you want to turn this into a book?" And it also actually, um, we got approached by a TV company, um, and they adapted that into a kids' TV show in Canada. Well, web series as it is at the moment. And so, so now you have like a, do you have like a three book deal or a four book deal? Because you have three of them out. Yeah, so I think it'll probably stay as a trilogy, but. There may well, well, I think there may well be other books from us in the future, maybe taking a slightly different tack. But yeah, I think uh, there's a few people out there a bit disappointed that we never did. Does it vomit? That's that's one, or does it puke? You know, we get we get asked about that a lot. <laughs> I don't like that one. That that I mean, I imagine everyone in the world loves that. I've got a, a vomit phobia, so I would never read that book. Oh, but no, it's uh, bad. But that would be. But that I mean, I guess that that kind of falls in line with with everything that you're doing. Now, the latest one. This is this is. A pretty no, no. I should also mention before we go on, you did all this stuff with with Does It Fart while working on your PhD, right? Yeah. So um, when we did Does It Fart, both me and Nick were PhD students. Oh wow! Uh, and then for Tropy, the second book, I was a PhD student, and Nick had just started his postdoc. Um, and then the <laughs> yeah. final one was just as I was finishing up my PhD. So that was intense. Wow. That was um. I, within a month, I handed in my PhD, and we finished finished the first draft of believe it or not so <laughs> <laughs> wow so these books have kind of like gone with you on your whole doctoral journey yeah yeah they definitely have you know a phd here is about four years and did three books throughout the process as well so wow. but i think it, it worked quite well it was it was a nice way to spend the downtime and yeah it just slotted in nicely i love reading and writing about animals so it was nice to go beyond the really specific phd research question and get a chance to write about something else i often hear that people who are working on their phd are wondering what to do with their downtime uh now i i should also mention and only nerdy scientists would say something that would, would give you this level of criticism but that in an interview i heard you say that a lot of people thought that the desert fart was pretty mammal heavy and so you decided to go with a lot of invertebrates for Believe It or Snot. Is this a real thing? I mean, did people really have kind of like animal envy? Yeah, I mean, because it, these books were so much like part of the science community on Twitter, I think there was a lot of 
invertebrate people that were like, oh, this isn't very balanced with desert fart. But then it was harder with the invertebrates because a lot of them didn't really have much of a digestive system. So there wasn't really a lot to say. Like, right. You know, so we tried definitely tried to make up for that a little bit. And believe it or not, we we wanted more of those kind of weird and wacky animals that people might not have necessarily heard of included. Yeah, you know, I, when I hear that stuff, it just so annoys me. It just feels like such a generational thing that, like, oh, you have to include every animal in every book. And it's like, does every animal have to be represented? I mean, isn't farts really a more evolved thing? Aren't the the higher animals that do that? I mean, does a does an amoeba fart like? Do we have to? Are the are the protists and the microbiologists upset that they didn't get included? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, well, I guess they're the ones who actually make the the gas, right? Like the microbes do. Uh, that's just such a silly thing. I can't believe people gave you that criticism. Well, I think it was all good natured, like kind of a good natured ribbing. Was it, it wasn't something that we had to do. It was a bit more like I just want to see my, a bit about my animal so it was kind of a chance for them to contribute as well yeah well and so how did you come up believe it or not is basically in a nutshell it's it's naturally occurring slime i guess be it mucus or lubricants or whatever can kind of be you get you give a great definition for flatulence but with with this believe it or not what was really your definition of slime for an animal to be included in the book so we kind of had it well Generally, it was kind of a viscous liquid, okay. you know, something between a liquid and a solid sure. doesn't dissolve in water, sticky, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does go a bit beyond mucus. Most of it's mucus, but there's definitely a lot of other stuff like, for example, spit that has mucus in it, but it's not just mucus. Especially if it's a loogie. And then other animals produce all sorts of weird slimes that wouldn't, we wouldn't really recognize because we don't have them in our own bodies. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and you have a slime table. It's like zero to five. And yeah, uh, it, it's it's funny how you even have some that, that have like half a star, basically, or half a slime spot. Yeah. Uh, so you go the whole gamut. There's like, I think there's a, fi- a couple 4.5s and a five, five slime animal. One of the things I found interesting off the top is that you, you you say how mucus does not dissolve in water. There's lots of really uh, a lot of this stuff would would almost make me vomit. So you can include me in your vomit book. But you guys <laughs> do it in actually such a great way where it's very scientific and it doesn't really quite trigger that gag reflex. But just the idea that mucus doesn't dissolve in water, you know, it, like that that's so gross. But that's kind of what makes slime slime, right? Yeah, 100%. Like, the reason mucus works like it does is because it doesn't dissolve in water. And that's why it's so important. Because if it did dissolve in water, every time we had a drink, we'd like lose all that lubrication that we have inside our bodies. So it would be a bit useless. Right. Now, I didn't know that it was made out of proteins. That was kind of new to me. And I think they're called mucins. Is that? I mean, I guess that's why it's called mucus, right? And these are secreted by cells in the nasal cavity. This is what's interesting is they they contain antibodies and bacteria fighting proteins, which I guess makes sense. But you also talk about how when people are sick, their noses kind of fill up and how that's a bad thing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so basically our noses are one of the first defensives we have against infection. So the snot's all up in there, the hairs are up in there, and they catch bacteria, viruses, etc. And then the mucus kind of traps it and gets rid of it. And there's... You know, we've got cells in there that fight these infections. 
But once we've got a cold, um, what the cold virus does is it makes us extra, extra snotty. And also the inside of our nose lining can kind of swell up. We get a bit of a blocked nose. And that's bad because then we start like blowing our nose loads and we're like putting loads of pressure on our nose. Mm -hmm. And that can cause, you know, often you might see that your nose is bleeding a little bit Mm -hmm. um, or it's getting rubbed. And that's a way that the virus can get into our bodies easier. So you not as good but you don't want too much snot because then your nose gets irritated and then that breaks down the barriers to these <laughs> these viruses right it's very it's it's equilibrium you need to have just the right amount of of snot in your nose for everything to exactly. work out properly. preferably clear as well when it's green that means you've got an infection so that's not much fun oh god okay that's good to know i mean everyone <laughs> out there that that's really good to know now in the book it's basically structured by you have an animal and then you talk about it's basically it's snot capabilities or, or slime capabilities. There's a lot of good stuff. Yep. I want to talk about some of my favorite animals and and I did these in order, but I'm kind of kind of jump through these cuz there's some really there's some pretty amazing stuff in here that I'd never heard of before and I'm I'm a pretty big animal guy and so I, I try to look for very strange animals that do kind of cool things and you, you taught me a lot of stuff. This book is really educational in all the right ways. Hedgehogs are very popular. They're in the zeitgeist. You know, Sonic the Hedgehog just came out. I didn't know two things. Number one, that they're immune to poisons. And number two, that they eat stuff, gross things, and turn it into a froth and then rub it on their bodies. How does this work? Um, yeah, so hedgehogs, that's it. That's, people for a long time kind of wondered, especially when they first became popular as pets, they were like, why is my hedgehog essentially dribbling all over itself? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty gross to watch. So what they'll do is if, if something smells particularly strong, they'll chew it up. It makes like a gross smelling foam in their mouth. And then they just rub it all over their spines, um, basically covering themselves in foamy, smelly spit. And I, they'll do it for anything that's strong smelling. Could be what we perceive as a nice smell, like perfume. Could be what we perceive as a gross smell, like some dead animals. Basically, scientists think that there's two potential reasons for this. One of them might be that they're uh, they're covering up their own smell, so that would that would make sense because anything strong smelling is going to make them smell like something else. So it's like, an ins- it's like an insecurity is what you're saying. They don't like the way they smell and they want to smell like something else. <laughs> it's more like if I was a fox uh-huh. or a badger yeah. and I wanted to eat a hedgehog, <laughs> then I would smell it, right? I'd be like, oh, where, where where can I find it? And then you'd sniff it out. But if that hedgehog smells like, I don't know, like a dead animal or some perfume, it's not going to be like, oh, hedgehog. Right. Great dinner. <laughs> it's going to be like, what is this? That makes a lot more sense, actually, than than, than emotional yeah. insecurity. And and just so we're clear, they're not blue at all, are they? Hedgehogs, no. They're 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 brown. They're all brown. As far as I know, all of them are brown. <laughs> they're probably someone's probably going to come up with this weird, obscure species of hedgehog where they're like, this one is not brown. Right. But yeah, no, they're generally brown. In the UK, we have hedgehogs are a native species here, so oh. those ones are definitely. Brown. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I mean, they're really, it's a really cool, it's a really adorable animal for sure. I mean, I guess if you're immune to poison, I guess you can kind of put anything in your mouth, but it's still, it's so funny that that, that's not evolutionarily taken out that they would, that they would have like a list of things that they would chew up and spread on their body, not like kind of anything, whatever kind of held their fancy, you know? Yeah, well, it seems to be like anything, which the other theory is that they're chewing up like toxic substances like toad skin Mm. to make themselves poisonous that's great um so that their spines hurt more um and some poor guy found this out because they gave 
the hedgehog some toad skin and then the hedgehog chewed it up and then stabbed him (laughs) (laughs) and he had a bad reaction so so yeah that's so crazy one of my other favorites is a parchment worm and this one i love this because they're not only slimy they have glow-in-the-dark slime it's bioluminescent and they actually can shoot their glow-in-the-dark slime at a predator and then the predator is now glowing in the dark, so th- their predator is now exposed to the next level up, the predator's predator, kind of like a bully's bully, you know. Uh, this is yeah. such a great de- defense mechanism. I would never go after a parchment worm if I was in the wild. Yeah, th- they are absolutely incredible. There's all different species of these. But, yeah, some deep-sea ones have this bioluminescent goo that they shoot at their predators if they if they get disturbed but the most amazing thing actually i didn't know this before we did the research for the book i i was um introduced to this by a a friend who actually studies these animals um and yeah they've evolved this glow in the dark mucus that they they chuck onto anything that, that that might get in the way but also they don't actually have any eyes or any way to sense light so they can't see that it's glow in the dark Oh, they've wow. just evolved that because it worked rather than they could actually see it, which which I think is especially amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that is. That's crazy. I mean, and it's such a great defense mechanism. I mean, I, I love that. You know, it, it's it's funny the stuff that goes on like down in the bottom of the ocean where there isn't any light. Like all the there's so many cool adaptations down there that it's it's kind of crazy how some of these things come to be, especially because their visual sense is, is essentially completely gone for most of the animals you know yeah well it's kind of like um we do similar things as people so you know some people have those lights on their house and then if a burglar comes along the light will shine on them when it senses them moving this is basically the parchment worm equivalent of that where it like (laughs) lights the predator up and then everyone can see it yeah that's a great that's a great analogy that's very true uh yeah just one of my favorite adaptations in this one you know i'm a baseball fan I haven't heard of a spitball in a long time, but apparently the slippery elm is a type of tree that's that's slimy, and baseball yeah. players used to use this for their spitballs back in the day? Yeah, they did. They did. They chew it up. It's got some chemicals in it that make things extra slippery, basically, and foamy and help it to foam up. So, yeah, it's the baseball players used to use it to for their spitballs. Wow. And it's obviously this is this is no longer legal, but it, it so it must work way better than than regular spit. But how did do you know? Do you have any idea how people found this out or discovered this thing? Um, I think basically the chemicals in slippery elm they have a property in them which will relieve. So, for example, if you have irritated mucous membranes, that's like the inside of your mouth or nose or um, if you've got a cough, then it, chewing it would help with that. So I, w- I would assume that probably people knew that it had these medicinal properties. And then some baseball player was like, oh, that seems useful. Right. You know, I'll make my spit more slimy because I've noticed that this happens if, if I use it for something else. Huh. And then that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny all the things that people use. Baseball is a very funny sport when you look at the evolution of it. So spitballs, knuckleball, all the, the ways you can throw a baseball have always just been very fascinating to me. Uh, one of the other cool animals is a violet snail. I love this because yeah. the snail almost, it's very industrious because it essentially uses mucus to, track, to trap air bubbles to make a little raft that it basically floats upside down on. But if yep. I understand this correctly, if that raft were to pop or anything, the snail basically sinks to the bottom and dies. 
Yeah, exactly. So they rely on these rafts to move around. Um, the rafts blow around the ocean and they just sit on the bottom of them, kind of like like a sloth would be upside down. The snail instead hanging onto bubbles and it's upside down. But yeah, if the bubbles get popped, then the snail just sinks to the bottom and dies, which is terrifying. Yeah, like, can you imagine no. just floating around upside down on the water and then just, oh, yeah, I'm really super glad I'm not a pilot snail. <laughs> that is like my worst nightmare because besides a vomit phobia, I also have a shark phobia. And I read this this article from in a Reader's Digest when I was a kid, and it's traumatized me ever since. But the idea of slowly sinking down into the depths of the ocean is like terrifying to me. Even like when I see movies and they have the the image of some you know like a big monster coming up from the bottom of the depths, and there's like this little person at the top of the water. You know that that stuff terrifies me. Well, if you were the size of a snail, it would be even worse. Like <laughs> right. even like a little fish is gonna. <laughs> could eat you so you wouldn't even have to worry about sharks you know no that's very true now the other thing about this and this is true of a lot of animals and this is one of those things that makes me wonder how in the world some of these animals have not gone extinct but essentially they ride around solo on these rafts so they can't really find a a mate that easily they're not there isn't like a, a meetup group or anything yeah. So essentially, like the males just kind of shoot their sperm into the water in the hopes, fingers crossed, that it finds a female at some point. Yeah. So they just kind of chuck it everywhere. There's a lot of animals that reproduce in these ways, right. um, and then hopefully a female will float through it. That's that's the thinking behind it. And animals like this produce loads, like absolutely millions of of egg and, eggs and sperm, right. because they basically got to fill the water with it in order to be able to reproduce. Right. No, I mean, and that's the crazy thing is it's there's so much luck involved, you know. I mean, even even I, I don't know the 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 numbers are astronomical to me. I don't know what they actually are, but th- that that is just one of those things that just blows my mind that these animals can exist, you know. Well, yeah, often they're animals that just have no control over their movement, or animals that are like stationary. For example, coral. If you go to coral, go to a reef like a coral reef during spawning season, right. like the water is literally like milky because there's just so much eggs and sperms being released yeah that is disgusting uh it is that's pretty gross you know and one of the other things so speaking of animals that i'm amazed aren't extinct this is one i did this on one of my other shows uh we talk about pop culture science and this is this the orange ruffy you you call them slime heads in the book but they're basically all the ruffies they yeah. they have what what I think is interesting. We'll get about the 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 mucus part in a second. But what's amazing about these animals is it's a fish that can live like 149 years or so. That's very specific. Yeah. I'm gonna say 150. I'm gonna round it up. And they take about 30 years to reproduce. I mean, that's like basically the the age of of human beings in L.A. take about that long to reproduce, right? Like you, that, that's crazy for a fish. Yeah. How in the world have they not gone extinct? Well. I think basically they were pretty undisturbed. Um, Animals that have these long reproductive cycles, they generally have really low mortality rates. Mm, So nothing's really eating them um, and they're not really affected too much by disease. They don't get that much nutrients, so they're often quite slow growing, slow to mature. And these kind of animals are quite common in the deep sea because everything just moves a bit more slowly. Um, and there's there's not as much food down there, so th- that's kind of how they keep going. Is because although they take ages to breed, they don't die very often, so they have plenty of time to get around to it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I mean, I guess so. It's just, it, it's one of those amazing things. You don't think of fish having these extra long lives. You know, sea turtles, you know, we're no. used to that, whales and stuff. But 150 years is a long time. I mean, alligators live pretty long, too. They're like dinosaurs almost. Although I do think that people would be surprised with how long goldfish even can live. You know, like people think that goldfish, oh, they live like one or two years. But goldfish can live like 10 years plus. Oh, I didn't know that. I know, know. They can live, I know they're very hardy for sure. But I didn't know that. And so so the Ruffy, they have basically their head is filled with mucus, right? Yeah. So they have these like slime channels uh-huh. um, and mostly around their head, which is how they get their other name, Slime Head. Right. Um, I'm not really sure why people decided this was appetizing, but people did. And <laughs> uh, um, that's part of their lateral line system. So all fish have this. It's just um, slime heads are, they're kind of bigger and full of more slime perfect for your book yeah exactly um and that helps them to sense like water pressure movement in the water um so like if another fish is swimming nearby it'll disturb the water currents and then the 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 slime heads will be able to sense it um i think probably the reason that they're more defined than in other fish is again they live quite deep so there's probably not too much light down there so they rely on them a bit more than other fish right so one of the things that I thought in the book, and I felt kind of silly for not making this connection, but you did it so beautifully, is obviously we've got dogs. They slobber a lot. They're, they're As far as slimy animals go, some are pretty slobbery. But they had a major contribution to the psychological field that we still deal with today. Tell me what that is. Yeah, so um, a really famous psychological experiment that's, you know, uh, I mean, I did psychology at school and I, I studied this at school, um, was Pavlov's dogs. They're, they're pretty well known, mm-hmm. well known for having a lot of dogs. And um, the reason for that is very slime relevant. Pavlov uh, was a psychologist and he wanted to examine reflexes. Um, and the animal he chose to do this in was dogs. They were pretty easy to access. Right, um, yeah. So still are. Um, he, yep, still are. So he he noticed basically that when dogs hear someone walking up to them with food, then dogs dribble quite a lot. Mm. And he wanted to know if he could teach them to to dribble when they heard a different sound other than the person who was feeding them approaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he decided to do was to use a click. The, the story is often told with a bell, but apparently it was more of a clicker. Um, and so every time they got fed, he would make the clicking sound. And then eventually there didn't even need to be any food. And whenever he could, click the clicker then the dogs would start dribbling i wonder how the clicker turned into a bell that's a pretty significant part of the story yeah i i'm not entirely sure either but when i looked back over like because you can still access the original notes from that experiment and yeah there was there was no bell i guess it's just people it's easier to explain to people and it would work with the bell like you could definitely train your dog today to do it to a bell so it may be that people who repeated it did it with a bell you could do it with a fart, too. I mean, you could do it with basically anything that came before food, right? Oh, yeah. You know, dogs are amazing at learning, like, all sorts of different commands. And also, and their reflexes will basically happen with anything. Right. But you could do a sound or you could do a movement. If every time you gave them food, you dance Gangnam style, right. then they probably start <laughs> dribbling when you did that. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty amazing. I've got a dog that uh, she is very, very food motivated. And I actually am teaching her simple addition for, with food. Um, not quite algebra, but she's 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 very capable. She's a very intelligent dog. And, man, it is amazing the things you can teach a pretty smart dog who's food motivated. Two very positive qualities in a dog. Uh, now, we're, 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 
about to hit on our first level five Slimer, and that's the hagfish, a fish that I've never heard of before, but I this is a cool animal, and, and I love their defense mechanism. So um, hagfish are basically the they're what we came up with as the slimiest animal. And yeah, a lot of people aren't familiar with them. They're um, a rather primitive species of fish. Um, they're very ancient. They evolved a super long time ago. Um, before most fish that we have today, they don't have a proper jaw even. That's how old they are. Hmm. And like other fish, they're fairly slimy. Most fish are slimy. Um, they're covered in mucus after all. So that's generally right. a slimy sign. Right. Um, but the hagfish beyond that, they can produce a ridiculous amount of slime when they feel threatened. So they have these um, lines down their side um, and they have special glands and they release a slime, which will expand over 10,000 times in water. Yeah. So like 40 milligrams turns liters of slime. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's incredible. And I love this because essentially what it does is any would be predator, it blocks their gills and basically suffocates them. Yeah, you can see some amazing videos of this online, actually, where a shark comes up and grabs a hagfish and then suddenly it's just like, blam, slime. Its whole mouth and its gills, everything's just full of slime and they're just desperately trying to get the slime out of their heads. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. Now, before we go any further, is it fishist to say that all fish are covered in slime? No, all fish are covered in slime. They would die if they weren't. They need that slime. Keeps their skin protected from the water. Now, would they be offended if you said that? Would you have to be a fish to say that all fish are covered in slime? I I don't think the fish would be very offended. I think probably they wouldn't understand you. In this day and age, I don't know. People, everything gets offended. So I'm I'm imagining I'm going to be a little sensitive with the fish and say most fish are covered in slime, even though we all know that they all are. Well, I think they would be they would be proud to be covered in slime. Do you think so? Yeah, like they've got to let their slime flag fly. Right. They, I don't think they'd have any shame about it. Okay, all right. and you've worked with a lot of animals. If anyone's going to know that, it's going to be you. Yeah. So maybe it is. Maybe maybe they are proud of it. I would be for sure. I got to tell you one thing. I wouldn't be proud of is if I took stuff from my butt and mixed it with other things and then wiped it on trees. But that's kind of exactly what hyenas do. Uh, and they have a thing called hyena butter, which is, you know, from the, yeah. from the butt butter family. Uh, this, is, this is really gross, but totally fascinating. Yeah, so hyena butter is kind of like a – it's about the consistency of, slight, consistency of kind of slightly hard butter, maybe peanut butter, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of like really, really smelly, a really smelly paste. Um, uh-huh. And they produce this from a gland near their butt, uh-huh. um, and they rub it all over everything to be like, this is my territory, and to communicate with each other, um, it can tell – other hyenas whether they're ready to mate and tell them to keep away um, and all sorts of things so yeah that's that's how they scent mark but it really is like a really gross substance like a lot of animals will urinate or you know have these scent glands but hyenas you know the, the fact is called hyena butter as well i think makes it particularly disgusting it does and the fact that you compared it to peanut butter is what i it's something i love to eat all the time and i'll never look at it the same way again uh that's that's very visual and, and this is one of the other th- cool things about this is not only do they use this to mark territory, but other hyenas use their butt butter to kind of show allegiance to their group, essentially, right? Yeah, so they'll all, um, in quite a lot of social animals, you'll see this happening. So they kind of overmark each other. Um, so 
that will show that there's a whole clan of hyenas in that area and that's their territory. Um, and it can also give other hyenas an indication of how many hyenas are in that clan and that sort of thing. It's it's pretty amazing, but I mean, it's really disgusting. And I imagine it also, are there any animals that like rub it off or is, or do people pretty much stay away from, from any area that's taken over by a hyena? Yeah, I think generally it wouldn't get rubbed off. There's definitely animals that probably ignore it. Like maybe lions generally are the ones in Africa that don't really care too much about what other animals are around. So maybe they wouldn't really care if they came across some hyena butter. That's kind of their defining characteristic, I think, of lions is they don't really care a lot. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. As someone whose work is kind of based on fieldwork out in Africa, yeah. We always, everyone that doesn't study lions always like lions. They're such jerks. <laughs> they really are. I mean, yeah. But look, if they, they got a lot of swag. Um, I remember I watched this. There's this famous video. It's called like the Battle of, I, I can't think of the name, but I'll put a link on the website. But it's this famous video that a bunch of tourists shot in Africa. And it's basically, I don't know. It's like, a, it looks like a giant bull. They got these big horns. There's a baby version of that bull. Um, that gets probably a buffalo yeah it, it pro- probably i don't know it doesn't look like a buffalo but let's just say it is so a, three lions kind of are, are trying to basically eat this this baby buffalo and within seconds this whole herd of buffalo come up and there's you know probably 50 of them with these big horns and they're going to take on these three lions and what's amazing is it's three lions against probably 40 buffalo and the three lions are like is that all you got? Like you, yeah. There's three of us, fifty of you. I think we're we're probably all right. It's this amazing video, and, and an alligator gets involved. It's one of the most amazing animal videos I've ever seen. And at the in the end, the spoiler alert: everyone's fine, you know. But uh, it's it's a pretty well. Cool the, video. the lions are fine if they didn't get their dinner, are they? I think probably they, hungry. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. That's I, true. I study carnivores. I'm always on team carnivores. Uh, you know, and, and the truth is, I understand. I, I get it. You know, uh, most people are going to be rooting for the baby. Um, uh, the, the baby bull, but but I do understand that you know there's this great there's this great like poem that says, you know it when it's when it's dawn the gazelle has to run faster than the lion or it doesn't live and the lion has to run faster than the gazelle or it doesn't live and it's you know yeah yeah exactly. so it's it's all yep. cycle of oh, life what? I get it but but that has nothing to do with slime but there is an animal that I had never heard of this animal before the it's called a uh, let me, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly. Larv- larvation is that it? Larvation. Yeah. Now, this is this is crazy. This almost is like a spider of the sea. It basically takes mucus and builds like a little house out of it, right? Yeah. These uh, there's quite a few feed filter feeding animals in our oceans, but larvations are probably the ones that build the most intricate filter feeding apparatus and also they build it around their whole entire bodies and then they just kind of float around although they do have a little tail where they can wiggle a bit in each direction um and they kind of swim around in this house made out of mucus and it has all these intricate holes in it um and they pull water through this um system um so it creates like suction through and the water passes through it and then any like plankton or little bits uh, that are floating about in the water that they might want to eat, they get stuck on mm-hmm. the slime, essentially. And then they kind of eat it, which I'm, I I think that was probably like the one way of animals eating their food that I was like, I'm so glad that I don't have to do that. Because can you imagine if you just, in order to catch food, you made basically like mm-hmm. a net out of your snot and then you threw it 
on, I don't know, some lettuce, if that's what you wanted to eat. And then you dragged it in, and then you had to eat all the snot as well as the lettuce. <laughs> that, would be, that, would be, that would be something. Yeah, I agree with that. I would not want to do that. It's very similar... You know, when you say it like that, it's, it doesn't sound particularly appetizing. I was thinking of it more of being very similar to a spider because they kind of do that, but they don't eat their own spider web. Yeah, I think that's the big difference really is for in order for the larvation to get the stuff that's stuck on the mucus, they also have to kind of eat some of that mucus as well. Um, so that's not Ugh, super no. nice. But then um, only a bit of it, and then the rest of it kind of gets tossed aside, and then they, they build a new one. Yeah, you mentioned it gets discarded to the bottom of the ocean, and I just kind of imagine this, the, this bottom of the sea littered with all these old, snotty, you know, food-filled nets of mucus. But it's probably not quite like that. Yeah, but that's actually super important. So carbon cycling, which is basically when carbon's taken from living things and then goes down to the bottom of the ocean um, and then gets eaten by stuff at the bottom of the ocean and then it gets cycled back up again so that's really important for taking carbon from the top part of the ocean down into the depths so that's an important thing for our oceans so well done larvations you did a good job right look they got to eat their own snot but when it comes to their place in the world they're extraordinarily important irreplaceable animals you know yeah. one of the things i didn't know this is kind of an interesting argument this next animal and this is the slow loris am i pronouncing that correctly now you say yep. it's the only venomous primate and that there's actually arguments on whether it is actually yeah. venomous or not so tell me how it works and then we can talk about whether it is actually venomous um yeah so basically slow lorises have glands under their armpits and that produces i guess it would be a poison because you don't want to eat it so that produces this toxin and they lick it and it gets collected on their teeth. Um, and then when they bite you, they are then venomous because that poison gets kind of put by their bite into you. So that's why people say that they're venomous. But actually, it's kind of debated because they're not really producing, they're not really injecting the venom. It's just a poison that they're putting into their mouths and then putting into you. So that's kind of where the contention comes from. And that makes sense. But that feels, I don't know, me personally, they, their body produces the venom. If they were eating like, let's say, fire ants or toxic ants and then using their ants venom and repurposing it and to, to attack their prey, I would say you have an argument. But if the animal itself, they're producing it in their, you know, in their armpits. So that's, they're a venom producing animal and they're injecting it is tricky, but they are biting it. They are placing it inside of the body of the other animal through their teeth, which while is not like snake level injection, it's still like a rudimentary injection. Yeah, and it's the age-old debate, right? Like, what people say is, like, if you lick it and you die, then it's poisonous. But if it bites you and then you die, then it's venomous. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Poisonous versus venomous. So that's really the, the argument. I see. But it probably would be great if you licked it either, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and yeah, I, I guess it's, yeah, they said it's really interesting. Um, I don't I'm going with I'm going with venomous on this. I, I, I like, I think this is really it's probably you know the evolutionary step between venom and poison but i i i'm going with venom on this one where do you stand yeah i think i probably also am more on the venomous side because i feel like it's biting you and then that's making it 
irritate your skin so it feels more like venomous to me there it is um i I like that we'll put up you know i may put up a poll to see what other people think but this is a really i mean the fact that it's a primate's really interesting i mean there's very few venomous mammals you know i think platypus is one of the only venomous mammals um so just just the fact that in this small little category it's just amazing that that they even that this even exists to, to any level is pretty cool to me but you know i mentioned ants one of the other this is this is a really cool one the horned lizard basically uses yep. its mucus to eat ants that are toxic to the the lizard but it wraps them up in this mucus i like this this is this is really cool yeah no it is really impressive this is like one of a couple of species that we found used slime for these sorts of purposes um so they don't really want to eat the kind of dangerous ant species but if food is scarce they don't really have too much choice they as you said they'll cover them in in mucus and in their spit basically this means that the ants can't bite or sting them um it stops them yeah basically attacking them from the inside uh and that's pretty cool and there's a few other animals that do this for example um night jars also cover the, all of their food in loads of gross spit so that it helps them feed it to their chicks without them getting all scratched right. in gross moths everywhere right mucus is it's it's a very helpful I mean, it, it mitigates the amount of damage that something can do to you if you wrap it up in a bunch of slime. And and a lot of animals kind of use that, the power of, of slime in that respect, and I, I like that a lot. We talked about the larvations, kind of making a house out of it. There's a bird called the swiftlet that actually makes a nest out of saliva. Yeah. And this is pretty crazy. How does it make saliva that is strong enough to hold its eggs and itself? Um, essentially, they just have special chemicals in their saliva, especially in the breeding season. Their saliva changes in cons- consistency, ready for building these nests. And they just go backwards and forwards. They find a nice spot on a rock and they go back forwards and forwards and they lick a line. And then by the time they've got to the end, that line is kind of dried, solidified. Um, and then they go back again and then they keep creating these lines and, until they've basically got a nest stuck onto the onto the wall it's like 3d printing with spit yeah it literally is so similar to that it is that's crazy and and you mentioned that th- th- they're in china and the chinese have been using their nests basically in soup for like 400 years yeah it's a really really old recipe um people tend to harvest it there was worries that it was unsustainable so um, some people in china actually started be- building special houses for the birds to make their nests in and then before they laid the eggs, they would take the nest or um, and they build a new one or more often um, after the eggs had hatched, they would take the nest off the walls and turn it into soup. And it's very high in protein because it's full of this special protein filled spit. <laughs> right. um, so, yeah, that's 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 a very traditional recipe um, still still eaten today. It, it's quite a thick soup that it creates. Um, but those nests are quite expensive have you had it before no i've, I've never had it myself but um i think it's like fairly commonly eaten and you can probably buy it in in a, in a lot of places to be honest you can buy the nests like online um but always make sure that they're ethically collected because you don't want to be buying ones that are taken when the eggs are still in the nest exactly uh i mean it's definitely that's something i don't know if i would i don't know if i would have uh the gumption to eat it but but maybe uh maybe i don't know there's there's lots of it's funny you look around the world i mean there's also the century egg which is also something else that i don't know that i would eat either but um 
But it's funny when you look at these things that have been eaten for so long is that it's, you know, it's such a part of the culture that it's it's kind of cool to see that kind of carried on, especially when it's done ethically, you know, like it's kind of a really cool yeah. cultural thing to see. Yeah, and it's definitely good to see that people were worried that the numbers were getting low, so then they made extra places for the birds to breed in exchange for people to take the nests up afterwards. So no, that's great. Uh, you know, and we've gone for most of the interview without talking about snot rockets, but whales apparently have big snot rockets when they come up and they shoot out of their blowhole. You talk about how people yep. are actually trying to capture these chunks of snot and, and study it. This is actually a big deal for, for scientists. Why is it such a big deal? Yeah, so if you're a whale biologist, it is quite likely that you're going around collecting their snot. It's quite a common way to monitor them. Uh, it can tell you a lot about a whale. Um, for example, what hormones they have, um, how stressed they are, if they have any diseases. Um, so th this is kind of pretty crucial information. It can tell you about the health of a population. But this means that People have to collect it. Whales live in the sea. They're kind of hard to find. Um, and there's kind of two main ways of doing this. The old-fashioned way, which is you drive up on a boat to a whale and you wait for it to surface. And then you catch it with a Petri dish on the end of a pole. Okay. Um, very primitive. So that's the traditional method. Right. Um, or more recently, one group of researchers have been using drones where they fly the drone with a Petri dish on the bottom over the top of the whale as it blows out, and then that collects the data for them. Wow. I, I mean, it's it's a lot of work to, to catch a, a blasted booger from, from a whale, but it's it's I guess if it's so important, it tells you so much information, you got to get it somehow, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's nice to be able, you know, traditionally, most of the information we had from whales came from whales that washed up on the beach. So it's cool. Like, all the time, we're learning new methods to study these animals without having to wait till they die. Right. <laughs> right. That's important. You know, a lot of these animals I, t I looked up pictures of, and one of the most impressive was the cave glowworm. These are, you know, bioluminescent cave dwellers. They glow and they can basically attract moths to them and insects and things like that. But they also, you know, much like the levations, they produce a mucus web. Uh, this is pretty cool. Have you seen these things in, in person? I sadly have never been to New Zealand. So it's a long way from the UK. It's like literally the other side of the world. So I haven't. But I've heard that it's absolutely stunning if you go to these caves because there's all these glowing worms on the ceiling, but you're quite far away. So they don't look like worms. That doesn't sound nice when you describe them as worms. But it's been compared right. to like stars in the night sky. It's pitch black. And all you see is the little pinpoints of light on the ceiling. So it's supposed to be amazing. I'd love to see them. Yeah, the, the, the pictures are, are really cool. I mean, they, it looks stunning, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, now, I want to get to a couple other animals really quickly. My favorite animal is the octopus. What I love about this is the octopus basically uses its mucus combined with ink to create several different concoctions based on what it wants to do. This is amazing and does not surprise me given the intelligence of an octopus. Yeah, so they can do some pretty incredible stuff by mixing in mucus with their ink. For example, they can create like a fake octopus almost. So they'll create this shape, but because it's got mucus in it, it hangs in the water much longer than if they just release their ink. Um, and then if a predator is trying to eat them, it tries to eat the inky octopus instead and then is, gets a mouthful of nothing. Right. Um. That's pretty amazing. It's it's I mean it's really cool and and I love this because they're they're such an intelligent animal that there there's probably even other uses of you know 
an ink mucus concoction that we probably haven't witnessed, but they're whatever the viscosity they need, they kind of they kind of mix it up. I really like that. Uh, one of the other animals, a parrotfish. When I when I was studying marine biology for a little bit, I remember parrotfish were the one of my favorite animals. These guys kind of produce a mucus sleeping bag, right? Yeah, um, so parrotfish, when, if you're ever on a coral reef, when it comes to nighttime, um, you'll notice that quite a few species of parrotfish, um, they won't just hide in amongst the rocks, but they'll produce this snot sleeping bag. And it's produced by their gills, and it envelops their whole body. Um, and yeah, so they're just basically sleeping in a mucus sack, uh, which you, people used to think that it helped them sense predators early, because the predator would swim into the bag and then the parrotfish would be alerted. But they actually think now that it protects them from parasites. Um, hmm. And they found that parrotfish with the snot sleeping bags had less marine isopods. Um, they feed on parrotfish blood. It's kind of gross. Uh, so, right. yeah, I'd be sleeping in a snot sleeping bag too instead of having sure. those on me. <laughs> as long as you didn't have to eat it every morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'd maybe avoid that bit. <laughs> Right, sure, sure. All right, and the last one, we got to talk about the sea lions because you mentioned that they're, they've got the worst farts in the animal kingdom. We're going to talk about that in a second. But they're also incredibly snotty. These guys are on, like, the top five list for both of these books. Uh, how, how and why are they so snotty? Well, I, th- this is the thing is, like, what, both of these entries came from talking to zookeepers where they were like, oh, my goodness, this animal always farts on me. Or in this case, mm-hmm. always sneezes on me. They sneeze all the right. time um, and they um, they try and get rid of any a lot of animals that live in salt water, sneeze out their salt. So I think that's probably part of it. But they also seem to like shake their head at the same time, which means if you're near them, all the snot. And they also have like mucus tears that stop their eyes from like getting affected by salt water so those also go all over you and yeah they just don't really care they sneeze all the time um so like i've spent a lot of time around well fur seals which are quite similar and yeah they're the same just always sneezing everywhere all over each other all over anything near them they just don't really care (laughs) that's pretty amazing i I, you know we didn't even get to uh pygmy speed whales and their anal syrup and uh, banana slugs, you know, I love them as one of the best mascots in college sports. Slime molds, boxfish, upside-down jellyfish. I mean, we've scratched the surface of your book. You've got so many amazing animals, and it is pretty incredible just how um, universally useful slime is, Whether no matter what form it takes. I mean, that's what I just found really incredible about this book is just how useful snot can really be. Yeah, and I think the amazing thing about it is there's things that we, even in people, we use slime and snot for an amazing array of things. And when you expand that out into the animal kingdom, it's incredible how many different uses these animals have for slime and what they are doing with them. Yeah, it's it's, it's unbelievable. So how can people get in touch with you? How can people get a hold of the book? I know you mentioned you're active on Twitter. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at, at Danny Rabiotti. Um, my surname's a bit hard to spell, but, you know, just give it a try. I'm sure I'll pop up somewhere. Um, but also you can buy our books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, 
if you ask at an independent bookstore, I'm sure they'd be happy to stock it. A lot do. Um, so that's probably the best way to get them. And my Twitter handle and Nick's as well. And also our wonderful illustrator, Ethan. They're all in the books as well. And I'll make sure I'll have links to this on the uh, on the website so people can find you. Now, you're going to stick around. We're going to talk about farts. I, everyone's been waiting to hear about farts. They're the funniest, probably the funniest sound in the animal kingdom. We're going to talk for 10 minutes on, on that. But, you know, I, I got to tell you, this has been this is such an incredible book, surprisingly entertaining and extraordinarily informative. I loved it. Uh, I did love learning about mucus. Believe it or not, Dr. Danny Robiati, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show, you got to subscribe. Run all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Subscribe, never miss an episode. And if you want to learn more, you can listen to some of the links that we talked about, links to other shows. I'm going to have them on the website, fascinatingnouns.com. You can just click right there and find a wealth of information on this topic and several hundreds of other topics and if you want to follow the show on social media i make that super easy for you scroll to the bottom of the page you can find links to the show's twitter facebook instagram pinterest and youtube links all at the bottom of the fascinating nouns webpage. got a newsletter behind the scenes you can even find out about other shows that i'm doing and if you like this show you can like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening end of transmission